Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. Tilly is back to talk about queer bodies, reproduction and surgery, fertility, endometriosis, having kids, adoption, and all the things that come with that, including fear of reproducing disability or reproducing mental illness in the next generation, talking about cannabis use, about STIs, and a lot more. As usual, we have a great time in this content-packed session. Enjoy. I'm super interested in talking about that. So let's start with reproductive surgery. What did you want to start talking about in terms of reproductive surgery? Um, I was figuring... Um, talking about issues like like fertility as queer people, fertility as people who might be perceived as cisgendered, but we're not necessarily um, talking about my own experience with like uh, deciding to have a hysterectomy and right. You know, my, I'm still kind of processing that experience and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And you've talked about like, you, you know the possibility of vasectomy for a body like yours and what that might mean to you and mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's the strangest thing i've i've pretty much become committed to not being a parent just because i don't feel like i can provide the emotional and financial security and stability i would want for a child at the same time, I'm very much fed by mentorship. I'm, I've been a volunteer big brother with Big Brothers of Vancouver for, oh, geez, years and years and years. My, my current match, we started when he was seven, and he's now 14. Wow. Yeah, and before that, I was matched in Kamloops with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, because it's one organization there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that match went on for probably five years. Four, four, four or five years, somewhere in there. Yeah, so I've been volunteering with Big Brothers some amorphous amount, more than 10 years, and I don't know how much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just, I can definitely see myself as a parent. At the same time, uh, my current partner doesn't want 
kids. And while we are both non-monogamous and there is an option for me to have kids with someone else, it's also a question of um, when I was considering a queer co-parenting situation, um, I went to go do fertility testing. And even though count and motility were good, um, morphology of sperm is also something that factors into fertility. Mm. And while it can be controversial, according to my... Um, According to the fertility specialist that I was talking to at a fertility clinic, um, they they believed that it's possible I'm not fertile anyways, which was kind of upsetting in a weird way because I had sort of found this potentially queer co-parenting situation where a non-binary human who has a uterus wanted to have a child and be a single parent and did not want a co-parent, but also wanted that child to have access to their biological, you know, sperm donor. And I was like, yeah, like that sounds ideal for my current situation. And I would love to chip in as much as I reasonably could with how resourced I am. Mm-hmm. And it kind of turned, it kind of died because it just turned into like, oh, well, we don't know if you're fertile. So like, what do you need to do around that? And I did some stuff and worked with a fertility specialist for a bit. And the fertility specialist was like, well, you know, usually, you know, you'd go away and try to get pregnant for a few months before we would try anything else anyways. And, you know, you haven't been trying for at least a year. So it's really hard to know if morphology is even playing into it. And I was like, great. So I have this like dubious fertility and on top of that, I don't feel situated to be a parent. And on top of that, my partner that I'm currently very deeply emotionally committed to um, is not interested in being a mother at any point in her life. And I'm like, cool, I get it. And also, there's this weird feeling that while I would love the idea of kids, I don't feel like I could financially support them post-pandemic. So it's like, <laughs> there's all of these reasons why it would be incredibly difficult for me to have kids. But, you know, my mental health is doing better and um, I'm sort of better positioned than ever before. But yeah, queer bodies and fertility, it's such a weird, like, bland, like, like, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say, like, it's such a weird space. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, so in my biography, like, I... Mm -hmm grew up and I, I didn't have a strong drive to become a parent. Mm-hmm. And then in my late thirties, I became involved with someone who at that point, I don't know where, where they are at this point in their mm-hmm. life or process. But at that point they really wanted to explore having kids. And so my nesting partner and I, did a bunch of stuff where like the three of us moved in together. Um, They started investigating their fertility stuff because they really wanted to bear the child and, you know, their trans and non-binary. And I started looking into my fertility options because um, in my sexual history, there had been about a decade where I had had sex with cis men And either through, like, good fertility care or something else, I'd never gotten pregnant. So I was like, I don't I don't even know. Um, Mm -hmm. And I a couple years earlier, I had had a laparoscopic or. Yeah, a couple years earlier, I'd had a laparoscopic surgery to treat my endometriosis. And while I was in there, I got them to 
they do a procedure. I forget what it's called, but they basically squirt dye up your tubes and your fallopian tubes to see whether or not they're scarred to kind of check that level of fertility. Cause mm-hmm. you know, they were in there anyway. <laughs> so I was like, right. Get it all checked out. Um, because I still, at that point I realized I, I enjoy children and I enjoy interacting with children and mm-hmm. maybe one, like I hadn't decided. And so, um, eventually that relationship fell apart, um, due to do a, a bunch of stuff like my mental illness we entered a we ended up at a kind of pivot point in our relationship and neither one of us was able to communicate effectively around like what we were feeling and what we needed at that point and like mm-hmm. it's still really painful to think about that and and so you know having a child with this person but became off the table. And then my nesting partner and I kind of talked briefly at the aftermath. And she was like, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to have a kid. And I was like, can we, can we take some time? Can we think about this? Mm -hmm. And that was around the time that my eldest niece who lives nearby, I have some nieces who live in nieces and and nephews who live in Ottawa, but like the nearby niece was like, young and I was and we were babysitting her frequently and I was Mm -hmm. like wow I really love this kid I love being her aunt I love playing Mm -hmm. with her you know taking care of her is great but I realized after a while of doing that that you know with my mental illness and with my physical illnesses that I realized that I don't feel like I have the capacity to be an appropriate caregiver for a child. Oof, that's a hard place to get to. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was kind of hard to take stock and realize that like being an aunt is great and like having kids over for like a weekend is wonderful. But I also like that I have alone time and downtime afterwards to recover from the experience and like, Mm-hmm. you know, resource myself up for the next time. And that, you know, like I like having a house that's like full of like books and art supplies and I don't like people touching my stuff and I like sleeping alone and all these things that I'm like, and I like sleeping, you know, eight hours a night. That's really important for me. And it's also important <laughs> to maintain my mental health. Right. And, these are things that don't necessarily happen when you have babies. In fact, almost guaranteed they don't. Right. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So I realized that basically I would make like, I, I don't want to sign up for the first five years of a child's life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And talk to my nesting partner and she was totally okay. And had come to the conclusion as well. And I'm really glad we took the time though. I'm really glad that we considered it. I'm really glad we considered our life and what we enjoy in our life and what we need in our life and what we need to do to take care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and feel that we can do things like show up. Like one of the things that really told me that maybe I shouldn't be a parent was I thought about the work of parenting and I realized that if I was a parent, I wouldn't be able to show up in the same way for my niece. Mm, interesting. 
Yeah. And I was, and that felt like big and heavy and important. And I was like, oh, I need to pay attention to that feeling. That's telling me some stuff. Right. Yeah. So now we are, you know, we are looking at ways to become like more involved with our, with our nieces and nephews and stuff like that. And we have in the past talked about potential foster parenting. Okay. That's a neat idea. Yeah. Like Kathleen really loves the idea of potentially fostering queer youth. Ooh, that sounds so rewarding. Right. That might be really fun. It also might be super challenging. Right. Um, I, I remember myself as a teenager. Go on. Right. I was, it's really funny. I was talking with, with friends last night on a video call and one of them was recounting like the one time they stayed out late and didn't tell their parents. And I was like, Oh, I did not have the amount of empathy you had for your parents. <laughs> I was not, I was a bad kid. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I mean, you know, I had, there were reasons why I behaved the way I did, but you know, I was not compassionate towards my parents at that point in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So Basically, I, I have endometriosis, and in the last couple of years, it became apparent that none of the various hormonal solutions my gynecologist and I tried to manage my endometriosis, none of them were bringing me relief. Mm-hmm. In fact, I ended up in this situation where I, because of the side effects of um, being on one of the hormonal medications I was actually bleeding twice a month and having cramps both times and I was like this is no this is no and so I kind of you know evaluated the fact that I don't want to have children with this body hmm. you know and the Ehlers-Danlos syndrome right complications and and you know I have a 50% chance of passing on Ehlers-Danlos to someone else, which I don't necessarily think, like, that actually wasn't huge in deciding not to have babies, because you can, like, a lot of people have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and aren't diagnosed, or they aren't diagnosed until later in life. I don't, I don't think that you should not have children just because your children might be disabled. Right. Yeah. Like, there's lots of us running around, living our lives, having worthwhile experiences, and we have disabilities, right? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. But I knew my experience of how Ehlers-Danlos plays out in my body currently. I did mm-hmm. not add the burden of pregnancy on top of that. Sure. And even just personally thinking about the intensely painful headaches and um, intestinal distress I've been experiencing, while a lot of that may not be genetic, um, and while a lot of that may not be carried by sperm I would contribute to create life, the thought I might pass that on to another generation, I mean, it is something that my dad had, um, and it's it's something that his brother has, and it's something that I have, and it's like, the thought that it might be heritable was just like, I can adopt a child and contribute to parenting in almost exactly the same way without adding a physiological burden of pain to someone. Yeah. 
and that's not to reduce the that like I'm not saying I wish I were never born. I'm not saying that I don't value my life and that someone else who is similarly afflicted with chronic pain wouldn't have a wonderful, productive and worthwhile experience. It's just that uh, thinking about that, I don't know if I would emotionally be able to like watch that play out in a child. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely I the genetic thing I worry about potentially passing on is my bipolar disorder. There's a strong history mm. of it in my family. And mm-hmm. and it's like it's been really hard living with bipolar disorder has been a significant challenge that has definitely shaped my life in a lot of ways and mm-hmm. um that I'm only beginning to understand since I've only really been effectively medicated for the last like three years of my life before that Mm -hmm. I was on a lot of medication that often wasn't particularly effective so that's something that I would worry about because just because it's it's really hard to go through and I would also worry about like being hyper vigilant and like like over policing my child's emotional experiences right because of my own experience with a bipolar disorder i honestly feel like if i were to adopt a kid and that kid had chronic depression and had chronic pain i would be like oh my heart goes out to you like this doesn't affect how much i care about you this doesn't affect my likelihood to adopt and at the same time if it were my genes causing it there would be this whole guilt thing that i would have to deal with in addition to that yeah. So it's strange. It's like, I don't have an issue even with having a child, watching a child suffer through those things and working to support them. It's more that I have an issue with passing on my genes and creating of all the lives that are going to be created and all the wonderful people that are going to come into the world. I would just rather not add chronic pain to one of their, one of their lives as like a, I, I don't know. It, yeah. It's hard to sell it as not a burden, you know? It's yeah, it's really, it's complicated. It's complicated because at one point, Like, I value my life. Mm -hmm. I think my life has meaning and purpose, and I think I contribute positively to the world. Yeah. And at the same time, I would feel really complicated Mm -hmm. about um, recreate. Well, I wouldn't recreate all the circumstances. There's definitely circumstances that wouldn't be recreated that I experienced. But, you know, it's, yeah, it's complicated. Um. Yeah, so I decided eventually uh, earlier this year, like I'd been I'd been thinking about it for a couple of years, and earlier this year I decided to request an elective hysterectomy as a way of reducing my experience of endometriosis. Right, like there's still. Mm-hmm possible that i will experience endometriosis that i will you know still have chronic pain from it but i was just like no i just because the burden of like bleeding twice a month i can't take over the counter painkillers anymore because one of them impacts my um kidneys which have been impacted by medications i've taken for the bipolar disorder Oh, right. And the other one causes medication induced headaches for me, which basically is like, oh, you take you take some Tylenol for regular pain and then 
within get other pain. hours, you get the equivalent of a migraine for three days and you can't take more pain meds for it because it will only make it worse. Um, oh, that's really brutal. Yeah, that's something that we just discovered last year about my body, which was not great. And, you know, like I can only take so many CBD gummies in a day. And being yeah. stoned all day is not my idea of a good time anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, my quality of life is shit. I'm not going to use this organ. Let's do this. Um, Solid. So, yeah. And so I was put on the waiting list. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of stuff happens. My quality of life is still terrible. Like it gets to the point that basically my life is organized around when I believe I'll be bleeding and kind of incapacitated for a couple days. Um, right. You know, and like you literally are coordinating everything else in your life around this chronic condition. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I hadn't had sex for a while because it's really hard to feel pleasant pleasure and like present in your body when you are mm. experiencing it as a continual source of pain like specifically Ooh. positioned around your pelvis, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like my sex drive had just gone down the drain. Also in also probably affected by the amount of progesterone I was on. <laughs> you know, like it was That's just like, brutal. Yeah. And so I yeah, so I, I eventually because of COVID, hilariously I got the surgery earlier than I thought I would. I they, they had a cancellation. They called me up. I had an hour to make the decision to go through this. And then I ha had my hysterectomy. And one of the things they did was, because endometriosis is linked to your hormonal cycle, they also took my ovaries. Wow. Yeah, which I knew they'd be doing. But it didn't really fully hit me until I think a week after the surgery is that there, like, there is no chance that I will have a biological child. Right. Like, like you can't even, you can't even donate eggs. You have no ovaries. You had a full ovarian hysterectomy. Yeah. You yeah. just have I, the pleasure parts now. Yeah. I have, I have the pleasure parts. I kept my cervix because I felt like my cervix was probably connected in some ways to my orgasm. So I was like, I want to keep that, which oh, might, that is so cool. Yeah, which is something you can ask for. You can just tell your surgeon that you want to do that. Um, of course, you have to worry about HPV and cervical cancer for the rest of your life. But yeah, but that's kind of um, like saying, you know, if you cut your arm off, you don't have to worry about burning your forearm. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you have to take care of your cervix, but also you have a cervix. Yeah. And I've had clear pap smears my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I haven't. I haven't had like penis and vagina sex for like over a decade. So <laughs> they really don't worry about me and HPV right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. If I start doing that again, I'll have to worry. I might have to get pap smears more often again. I will. Well, and, and like worst case scenario, you could always theoretically get a vaccine for whatever forms of HPV you don't already have. I asked about that. And I was told that I am too old to get the HPV vaccines. 
I mean, there's the question of whether or not it's free and there's the question of whether or not it's recommended. Um, for me, for example, um, they identify me as a, um, as a man who has sex with men or as a queer man. And I'm like, I don't really like any of that labeling, but like, okay. And they're basically like, yeah, you should totally get the, the vaccine, but we're not going to pay for it. And I was like, cool. Well, I happen to be enfranchised enough to be able to shell out, you know, $200 every, every, was it three or three or six months, um, three times. I'm like, cool. Yeah, I'll pay for that. It's, it's just like, it's like paying for genital wart insurance, um, mm. and, and potential penile cancer, um, and insurance. And it's like, cool. So I spend this ludicrous amount from this private firm that's developed this. It's one of the most expensive vaccines on the market. And they're so cheap and foreign to vaccination that they don't even provide a needle. And they're the only vaccine company, according to my GP that does that. Oh. Even though it's like 200 bucks for one of three doses, it's, it's stupidly expensive. But having said that, um, they also did research into HPV, which I mean, other than some basic cancers and like the treatment for genital warts is incredibly simple. Um, it's inc for me, it was incredibly painless. Um, I, I was quite shocked at how, cause I, I have had genital warts once before mm -hmm. and I was absolutely astounded at just how like we're talking the treatment was done by my gp and took all of two to three minutes it was on a pain scale for me as a bdsm person um i would say the pain was a three out of ten mm. um maybe even a two out of ten like it, it it approached it approached like a three out of ten discomfort at the most painful point but other than that it was like a zero to a two and I made a full recovery within two weeks. And other than having to tell people, hey, I've had H, you know, I've, I've had this infection of HPV and I could theoretically slough off ferians at any time. Other than having to make that disclosure, it really hasn't impacted my life. And it's great that everyone's getting vaccinated for it because it will reduce cancer rates. But like we panic so much about STIs in this society. And sometimes they just they really don't have to be as bad as the horror stories you hear in school. Yeah, really. I know I have herpes and I have I have HSV one, but I have them on my mouth and my labia. Super fun. Okay. Um, and it's like my first outbreak was pretty uncomfortable. Um, I was also, you know, like I was panicked. I was having all these feelings. Um, but I've had maybe three outbreaks on my genitals. And right. yeah. And I'm just like, oh, the only thing was, um, so it, herpes is like super common in North America, right? Mm. right? So many people carry it, have been exposed to it, have it. Like, you know, I, I have oral HSV. Like I don't, I, most of my friends growing up had oral HSV and they shared drinks. So it's like, yeah, Exactly. Like that's, that's one of the things is it's also so easily passed on, especially the oral one. Right. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I had sex with someone though, who is from Europe and I had forgot to mention to him. Oh no. Yeah. That's incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, he's fine. Consent yeah. accidents do happen. 
yeah but you know it's very it just like i i felt so bad because i was like i've been having these conversations for like 20 over 20 years what do you mean right. i forgot to tell you oh yeah well even the best of us you know make those mistakes sometimes we get caught up in excitement or you know we're so busy going through all of the other things and at a certain point we've added so many things that we've forgotten one of the basics yeah. Yeah, and you and just figure like we had the talk and I, we were talking for like 15 minutes and I covered all these minute points. Did I forget anything? And you're like, no, I covered even the minute points, but you forgot one of the like, yeah, it and is it's what it is. Like someone who you, you have known for years and you're like, what do you mean? You mm. don't know. Like for someone like me and I assume for you as well, like we're both mm -hmm. fairly open people about these things. Like it yeah. would be like, what do you mean? I forgot to tell you I had herpes. Oh, Right. Sometimes I forget to tell people that I have oral herpes. Right. It's just like, it's such, I haven't had an outbreak on my mouth in like five to 10 years. Like it's been so long since I even had an outbreak orally. Yeah. And you forget, like, honestly, it's, it's easy to forget. Like until someone's like, have you ever, have you ever tested positive for any STI? And I'm like, no, I've never tested positive for any STI, but, um, a doctor did visually identify a genital wart. I did receive treatment for it. Um, I haven't had any other wart since then. Theoretically, I could slough off variants and pass it on, but the wart I had was in a condom protected area. So it's, un, it's, it's incredibly unlikely provided I'm wearing a condom, but it's still possible. Yeah. Right. And telling people about having oral HSV. I don't know which, which form of HSV it is because you have to have a lesion to get it tested. And if it's an oral lesion, people don't really care enough to test it. And having like having your lesion swabs is really not a great like I think if you have the opportunity to get your lesion swabbed, you might as well get your lesion swabbed. But like, it's not fun. <laughs> That's good to know. I, I assume it wouldn't be fun because even touching herpes lesions is typically not fun. Yeah, no, they I yes, I'm always very conscious when I have one because I'm like, don't touch don't touch the mouth. <laughs> Actually, yeah. you know, to be perfectly honest, the the form of herpes that I get is almost like I get like an a tingling in the skin and then it turns into like a waxiness on the skin and then that turns into I guess more waxiness, which by which mm -hmm. I mean like it's not like they're fluids or anything. It just the skin feels a little different for a while and then it goes away. Like the the form of oral herpes I get is so mild. That is super subtle. Like, it's not like I get big lesions or that they're really painful. Um, when I said having a lesion touched is really painful, I was actually thinking of a canker sore that I had mm. in my mouth when I bit my cheek once. I'm like, that's not, that's not herpes. <laughs> no. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate. But I think that also comes as a result of getting it super young because your immune system's strongest when you're like a baby. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I got mine in... Oh, I, it was like my early thirties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's really hilarious is that, um, sometimes people consider my sexual history risky because I have a sexual history of having sex with cis men. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those cis men. And I still find within the community of like lesbians and dykes, there's a little bit of a like, we don't have to worry about. Right. Yeah. 
I I totally caught herpes from a lesbian. Oh no. And so now I feel like I'm like, well, at least I have like some sort of uh, educational quality about my STI. Right. You're like, we can. Well, and so the funny thing is, too, when you mentioned that you got it orally and um, like labially, like genitally, I was like, that's actually incredibly uncommon because once you get herpes in one location, you can still get it in another location, um, especially if it's a different strain. But even if it's this, like if it's the same strain, it's possible, but it is so unlikely once you have like an oral or um, genital um, infection after you've gone like the whatever the time period is months or however long um you are you have so much more resistance to getting it in a different location although you can it's way less common so the way that people typically get it in two locations is they're infected in both locations at once yeah which is entirely possible for me but that's how it happened Mm -hmm. so yeah i just i find it hilarious that i yeah yeah you know have all this like statistically rare stuff going on with the this virus (laughs) i carry right you have you have um airless um airler airler down danlos wow airler danlos i can say that yeah (laughs) which is already like an incredibly small percentage of people yeah although i Um, i'm I think I've told you I'm very doubtful that it's actually like one in 1,000 people. Oh, right. That it's likely just underdiagnosed. I believe so, because honestly, like, I know, I know probably about 10 people with Ehlers-Danlos. I mean, admittedly, occasionally people are just like, oh, my God, you have ADS. I have ADS. Let's talk. Um, Even as someone who doesn't have you know, EDS, I know three people who have EDS, but I'm also in the kink community where people are more open about stuff. And I'm in the kink community where, you know, I feel like chronic pain folks are just like attracted to the kink community. Yeah, I think there, there, there definitely seems to be a relationship between chronic pain and kink or openness about chronic pain and kink because sure. And it is anecdotal, but still, I just wanted to mention it. Cool. Yeah, it's well, just fun you... to have people be like, you have this rare disease. And I'm like, yes, me and my friends. <laughs> um, my other friend, um, Billy, who has EDS, well, one of my other friends, um, was also on the show recently. And it is, the sessions are really good. Like, if you haven't heard them, I should just send you the MP3s if they haven't been published yet, because they're so awesome. And I think you would enjoy them. That would be great. Um, but she also started a group on Facebook, the one I invited you to. Um, I'm oh, pretty yeah. sure. I'm pretty sure she started that group. I could be mistaken. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good group. It's it's you can, all you can plug problem it. solving, which is really nice. Instead mm-hmm. of, um, you know, I'm I'm in a couple other EDS groups, and they mainly seem to be about like sharing memes or people getting stuff off their chest, and mm-hmm. you know, like. You need different things at different times, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that one's called EDS Life Hacks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's focused on like when you discover a cool way of working around a problem, like post it so that other folks with EDS can be like, oh, that's how I don't, you know, dislocate my finger joints when trying to open <laughs> blah. Apparently it's um children's car seats. There have been oh, so many posts lately about 
people with the difficult, grippy bits of, yeah, kids' car seats. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and people talking about, like, good brands of pens to not hyperextend your finger joints, mm. which is such a problem with EDS. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good group to be part of because sometimes you just, you know, you just need to know, like, what's the best brand of bra that I can put on without, you know, popping a shoulder out or something like that. And mm-hmm. I don't think he, it's really funny, but I don't think people who are able-bodied understand how nice it must be to have your body also stay in the positions you put it in. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have... I have all these experiences of like moving my body in a certain way. And then um, because my ligaments are over flexible, you know, it just, it just moves or it hyperextends or it pops out a joint. And, and then that's a whole situation that you have to like deal with before you can do the next thing you're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any closing comments on, bodies and reproduction or queerness or disability oh this is something i forgot to talk about in relationship to genderqueer and and my hysterectomy is one of the things that made me feel really good about my hysterectomy and feel a lot Mm -hmm. better about it was i realized that i this was not the reason i got surgery but the result of surgery was that my body was less binary sexed Mm-hmm. And in in that felt like just subtly affirming in a way that I hadn't expected. Interesting. Which, yeah, it was pretty cool. Almost like there was a subtle background noise of like a little bit of dysmorphia of just feeling a little out of place being binary sexed. And then suddenly when that was shifted a bit, you were like, oh, that background noise is a little lower. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that I had never considered that my discomfort with my period might be a form of dysmorphia because I was like, mm-hmm. everyone has a hard time with their period. And now I'm like, Oh, maybe, maybe I'm just the kind of person who, you know, shouldn't have been having a period the whole time. Yeah, that's absolutely possible. Yeah. Once again, thank you so much, Tilly. It's always lovely to chat with you and catch up. Thank you. It's always lovely to like, Pop in on your podcast and talk about all the things with you. I really love our conversations. Yay. I think I need to call it for the day. That's that's good. A bit mentally fatigued. Yeah. Take care of yourself for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also (sighs) feel that like my, uh, my ability to put things into like clear verbal concepts is is probably not as great as it i'd like it to be i completely understand i'm literally midway through the last session i had to take my pants and shirt off because for (laughs) reducing audio noise i close the window and close the curtains so i'm like sitting in this room there's blistering heat late august heat outside i have deep purple lush curtains that are just soaking up the sun and pumping heat into the room and I'm looking at like a 32 inch screen because I need this big mounted screen panel on the wall 
um, because this cat loves to run over my laptop all the time. So I have to like close the lid of my laptop and use this screen. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, the screen is just also seemingly pumping heat towards me. And I'm like sweating in my boxers, just being like it hot thoughts hard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're baking yourself. I've been sitting in my swimsuit in front of a fan. Oh, that's such a good idea. Right. And I have an inflatable, I have this inflatable swimming pool on my patio Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I think I'm going to go sit in for a bit. That sounds absolutely amazing. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions, or you can go to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.